What comes after the end? Last week we said, this is the end. <laughs> a new beginning. It must be a new beginning. So if we're, if we're still here, we still have more to say. It must be a new beginning. I suppose what we've been doing is touring the book of Jeremiah. <laughs> Hasn't been a very long visit. <laughs> Seeing what we, trying to see what we need to see, and then move on. I suppose that if this is a tour, what we've come to is the greatest mountain peak of them all on this tour, the, the mountain of this amazing book. I think if we ascend this mountain, the section that we're reading tonight, I'll let you turn to Jeremiah 29. We'll be in Jeremiah 29, 30, 31. We've arrived, I would say. From this peak, I think we can, we'll be able to look out, and it's giving us a, a clear view. A clear view of everything that's come before that we've read already. And a, a recap of many of those things. A, uh, a telling of what is the current situation... <laughs> And then a telling of what's going to come to be. From this mountain, we can look down behind us and see what I would describe as a wilderness. Where there was no good thing. What have we read in all of this that seemed like a good thing except for just little glimpses of the goodness that God wanted to share with the people? Behind us in the wilderness where we saw the, uh, the disobedience of the people and the displeasure of God, right? But ahead of us, God has brought us up here to look ahead to the promised land. We're getting a clear picture from here and all the goodness that God has in store for his people, whose people you are. This is also in some ways like the mountain where God came down and revealed himself to the children of Israel and to the children of Judah. And as at Sinai, he will make the earth quake once again when he comes down in some still future, near future judgments that will still come to pass. Most of that's in the past. But some of it, especially with the nations surrounding Israel, there's unfinished business that the Lord has with the nations. And from at this mountain, we will see that. And the nations will fear when they encounter the Lord. His people will fear too, but for a different and very peculiar reason. I'm reading Jeremiah 33, verse Six of his people, it says, they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it or for them. Very uh, peculiar thing, but they are going to be so impressed and so overcome by the goodness of the Lord. Even his own people, it'll be fear and trembling for them too. He is coming down on this mountain peak here in Jeremiah to show his goodness. 
he is going to pass before them as he passed before Moses. And he's going to proclaim the name of the Lord before them. That will bring us into our first, um, first ideas here that we need to summarize and see from this section of Jeremiah. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth or faithfulness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet who will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is going to come down through the words of Jeremiah and show himself to them, not his great power in breaking apart rocks and mountains, but his great goodness and kindness toward his people. Who is God? This is God. We've said all along that the message of Jeremiah has been all along, God has been trying to reach out to his people, but they haven't listened to him. In spite of that, in spite of all of that, he had in mind to cause them to know him. They shall know me. And no place greater. God is seen in all of this. It's on his character and his ways are on every page. But no place in Jeremiah greater than in what we're seeing here, I, I, I must think. They shall know me. And they will know the Lord on the basis of these things. His invisible attributes are clearly seen on the, in these words and in everything he says that he's going to do um, around them and in them and for them. He says that he is the Lord God. But significantly here in this passage, it's not just that he's the sovereign ruler of the universe, a distant, impassive God. Here, very significantly, he will say that he is their God. He repeatedly refers to himself in this way. And when he says, this is what I'm saying to you, he will say, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He's the God of his people. And what he's intending them and going to cause them to know is that they will be his people and he will be their God. That's what we will see here. He is the, uh, the God who is compassionate toward his people. This is 31 verse 20. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly will still, uh, still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. You'll see, for each of these, I've selected the passages that I think bear out these ideas in one way or another. And we won't read all of these at this occasion Many of these here, but I, I do want you to be 
impressed by this idea that when God reveals himself, it's in all of these things that we've been trying to say and see. And just repeatedly these things come to, come to light. He's a God who is gracious. Among other things, in 31 verse 14, my people will be satisfied with my goodness. He will show them his grace and goodness. Now, to the slow to anger thing, I think we've seen that maybe better in all the other sections we've read together than maybe in this. But the, but the reason for that, I think, is that we're past that point. His anger has run its course. He's had to chastise them, punish them severely, drive them out. His anger, in, in some ways, has been satisfied. But even in this uh, section, there's a retelling of the Lord's patience with them. He is slow to anger. He's, he'll say in chapter 32, This city has been provoking me since the day it was built. <laughs> and in spite of all of this, and in spite of everything I brought on, it has endured to this day. And it will be built again. And it's because of the, the Lord who is slow to anger. He is abounding in, some of them will say, loving kindness or loyal love. When they were far off in 31, this is verse 3, he would say, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you to myself with loving kindness. He is abounding in these things. He's abounding in truth. And in trying to understand this to the best of my ability, I, I think the truth here from the Hebrew word is especially in the sense that he's going to be Faithful. He's going to be true to them, and he's going to be true to his word. Okay? I think that's the sense we need to be understanding this, this Hebrew word, truth. There's the uh, sort of canonical sense, things that are part of truth. I don't think that's what this is speaking to, um, describing the Lord. It's about, again, his covenant faithfulness. It is paired with his loyal love and the idea that he keeps Loving kindness, and these things certainly overlap. Um, but he's abounding in truth. 33 verse 6. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. 31 verse 3 again had said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I am drawing you to me with loving kindness. He is the one who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And our visits to Hebrews are helping us to process all that that entails for them at this time of appointing especially ahead to the forgiveness that we experience by being his New Testament, New Covenant people. I will make a new covenant. And what that 
is anchored in is my willingness and intent to, to forgive. In 31, verse 34, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. How will they come to know the Lord? It's for this reason. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So he forgives. And the last of that is that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. These, these readings definitely deal with the punishment that God had had to bring about on his people. And you'll recall from our previous discussions, it was this a punishment as a father and his son, right? But uh, a lot of the telling of, in this context of the ones that were guilty and would be punished is, is actually a hopeful view even for God's people because it's the ones that had oppressed them. Israel, Judah and Israel have been punished. They've, they've seen um, God's wrath because of their guilt. And now the other nations who abused them in the process and who were seeking their own gain and their own glory in everything they did to them, now they're going to see, and they will too come to know, the whole earth will come to know, um, the Lord, the Lord God. All of these things in this mountain. What do you want to say about this before we go on? Anything at all? It's a lot of concepts. How can you have any one particular thing to say if you didn't come here with hours of preparation to say it? So, um, so we'll go on. Another one of the uh, key things we're seeing in this text and one of the foundational uh, paradigms, I'll use that word in this text, is that what was is going to be changed. Things that have not gone well are going to be restored. And what was a mess is going to be reversed. So I'm calling this a look at the reversal and the restorations that we see in a uh, so you could call this an overview of the great contrast between what was and what he's intending to do. And we start with the one that we've seen um, probably at least as much as any other, which is that um, planting and building is going to replace uprooting and breaking down. This is 31 verse 4 and 5. Uh, again, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Verse 5, again, you shall plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planter shall plant and shall enjoy them. This is 28, verse 28. As I have watched over them to pluck up, break down, overthrow, and destroy, and to bring disaster... So I will watch over them in the same way and to the same extent, or maybe more so, <laughs> I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And then 
in a final statement in verse 40. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. This is a a total reversal of everything that he had had to do among them and among the nations um, up until this point. The hand of discipline gives way to the hand of welcome in verse 20 there in uh, 31. Ephraim is my dear son, my delightful child. I've spoken against him, but I remember him. My heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. I will call him back to myself. And it gives way to this hand that is of gentle guidance. There's a, a really beautiful statement in verse um, that's actually not right. That says 31:19, and it's not that because I already know. It's, it's verse 9. 31 verse 9. And I'm making note of that, pausing for a moment. Um, With weeping they shall come, and by supplication I will lead them. He's taking them by the hand. Um, I will make them walk by streams of water, on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Just like I would take the hand of my three-year-old when there's some kind of treacherous something going on or a dangerous situation. This, this can mean disaster. And God had driven them away with a strong arm, but now his hands are going to be used. Open arms to welcome and hands to gently lead and guide. The reproach or the humiliation that they had brought upon themselves is going to be reversed by repentance. Listen to verse 18, still in chapter 31. And they recognize that the Lord has been, you know, chastising them, correcting them, and there are those who are really trying to turn, and they're recognizing that this was good. It came about because of, just because of what, they had done, and that they wanted to turn back. The Lord says, I've surely heard Ephraim grieving. And these are Ephraim's, you know, sons of Judah's words. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. It was effective. Like an untrained calf. But that's the past. He said, they say now, bring me back that I may be restored, for thou art the Lord my God. For after I turned back, I repented. After I was instructed, I smote the thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. But now they're turning back and all that is taken away. And it's just joy and goodness and blessing. The scattered sheep, the ones that in fact the Lord himself had scattered They were worthless flock, worthless in every way. God is saying, now I'm going to gather them again. There's the contrast there. 31 verse 10. He who scattered Israel will gather him as a shepherd, not just gathers, but keeps his flock. A total restoration, well-being for the flock and a, a gathering. And there's a restoration to the land. 
The land had its Sabbaths when they were forcibly <laughs> driven off of it. And the land saw great wickedness. And God purged the land and took them from it, but then he intended to bring them back. This is 30, verse 3. I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their forefathers. 29 verse 14 will say, I'm going to gather you from all the places I sent you. He spread them far and wide and broadly. And he is going to gather them again. 30 verse 10, I will save you from afar and Jacob shall return. Very confident and firm promise. The, the curse that this land had seen and had become and had been well known even among the nations, the curse is reversed. That's what we're saying. We're talking about reversals. The curse is reversed. Um, if we borrow from Zechariah 14 verse 11, people will live in it again. And there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And they will see that the land is, is receiving the blessings of the Lord again. They will recognize this. And it's going to cause an occasion of praise for the Lord on the basis of the fact that this place is blessed again. 31 verse 23. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. And since we like to see wherever we can the really beautiful connections with our study in Hebrews. You, you have come to, not Mount Zion, to, oh, to, not Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, I'll get it straight, I'm not looking at it here. Mount Zion, the holy city, angels, new covenant, and these things. So a restoration to the land as well. And where God had taken away from them any joy, any joyful occasions and any joyful sounds, the voice of joy is going to return. And it replaces really, uh, in our reading you'll see, it replaces two different things. There's mourning, which uh, you can expect. Look at, um, where are we here? Uh, 31 verse 13. The Virgin shall rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old together, and will turn their mourning into joy. Or I, I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. To whatever measure they had experienced sorrow, even from him, he's replacing it. He's overwhelming it. He's pushing this aside and providing Joy, And you'll remember, uh, as we said, Jeremiah 7 and the temple address. I'm going to take away from you the voice of the bridegroom and the bride. Um, but it will be heard again. And this is uh, 33, verse 11. The fact of the matter is we're flipping around a lot. But if we were to try to read this all through and say anything coherent, especially when all of these things are threaded together throughout, I don't suppose we could 
make as much progress as I would like. So I hope you endure just a little bit of one page this way, one page that way. 33 verse 11. These streets are desolate. And so it's, there's not even mourning taking place in this kind of telling of it or this kind of view of it. There's no sound whatsoever. There's nothing. There are no people, and there's certainly nothing going on. And in this desolate place, again, verse 11, there's going to be heard the voice of joy, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. Um, and it's going to turn into an occasion for praise for the Lord. Because the voices are also going to be saying toward the end of verse 11, or middle of verse 11 maybe, the words of Psalm 100. So these will be familiar to you. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts. This is what you're going to hear now. There was silence before, wild animals roaming around. But now what you'll hear is people praising God. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. And there's a voice of those who bring, bring thank offerings into the house of the Lord. Noise. Good noise. Blessed noise. The royal line that had been broken abruptly with Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, whatever, however we want to um, select a name to call him, Coniah, the royal line had seemingly been broken off. And has God abandoned his promise to David? Absolutely not. Definitely not. And so the, I said, I said broken royal line. Let's say seemingly broken, okay? It's been revived. Um, let's look at 30, verse 21. Actually, I'm actually go to 33 verses 14. Verse 14, uh, 30 chapter 30 says, "Their leader shall be one of them." How can that be? The line of kings has run out. Their leader shall be one of them. The the Lord can accomplish this. And so, in this is 33 verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good words which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she, Jerusalem, shall be called. They are called after the Lord, and it's the Lord our righteousness. That's their new name. For thus, verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. What you've seen temporarily in this removal of wicked kings is not God's final answer. And those king, that king shall come and sit on that throne. He shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levites will never lack a man um, in their representation of Jesus and Jesus' uh, kind of um, 
uh, replacement of them to prepare sacrifices continually. And so, yes, the, the seemingly broken line is revived. And then finally, for these reversals, uh, at least for the ones that I recognized and acknowledged in this, you may have seen some yourself, and if you have, in uh, 45 seconds, you can tell us. This, I'm preparing you for the mic this time. Um, the last of these is this recovery to health. They were restored from a terminal illness. That's the description in uh, chapter 30, verses 12 through 17. But I'm actually going to defer. This, all of this brokenness is healed. We're going to the next slide before we see that. Because this is going to help us transition to... Uh, the next set of observations about the text. What do you want to say before we go on and talk about the healing? Anything at all? Okay, I know it's hard. We're, we're going, going like crazy. This will introduce, the, this healing is going to introduce what another dynamic that's happening in this text, and that is there are several metaphors that God is using in the things that he's doing for the people at that time. It's being used as a metaphor for future deliverance from sin. And the sickness and the brokenness and the, um, the injury, the wounds, are the, the first one of these that I noticed. And so we're in, verse, uh, we're in chapter 30. And it's, this looks like verse 12. He is leaving the context where he says that his correcting them and chastening them is just and right. And it's left them in a, uh, a, a bad situation. It's because of their sins, but it's also because um, the Lord has had to deal severely with them. And... It's described as a sickness or some other medical injury. Um, we're in the emergency room with an abscess in our arm, and it's serious. This infection can, what if it spreads? Is it, um, hopefully it's not this serious. Verse uh, 12, thus says the Lord God, your wound is incurable. And your injury is serious. This is, this is describing a helpless, hopeless situation. There is no one to plead your cause. Uh, no nurses have come into the room to say, what is the nature of your problem here? There's no healing for your sore. Is it because there's no balm in Gilead? It's because they hadn't sought it out. It's because they had stayed in their sin. There's no healing for your sore, no recovery for you until there was no remedy, right? Um, that's what they had seen so far. And all their allies or lovers had forgotten them. They don't seek you. But the Lord said, I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. And he asks a, a, a sort of funny question here. 
Why do you cry out over your injury? It's because I'm hurting. Who says, your wound, is, your pain is incurable. Why? This crying out won't, won't do you any good at all. There's no one to come when you cry out, except that the Lord would come. Why do you cry out? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Because of this, I have done these things to you. But because he looks on them and sees their desperate position, because of that, there's a therefore in verse 16. Therefore, looking at their state, they recognize it. He sees it. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. He's... He's making, he's, this is a remedy, right? All your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity, and those who plunder you shall be for plunder, and those who prey on you shall, I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health, and I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast, saying, it's Zion, no one cares for her. God says, because they've done these things, and because they've abused you and neglected you, And because of your desperate situation, while they were still helpless, God was going to act on their behalf. Malachi 4 verse 2. Well, I'm turning because um, I'm struggling to remember it all. No, it's not. Yeah. Malachi 4 verse 2. But for those who fear my name... There's a recovery. For those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will shine with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. This is a full recovery that the Lord intends to make for them, healing for them. And so this is a picture of the desperate situation that we know because of sin and what God intends to do about it. And he did it in a way for them, and he does it, uh, in the new covenant for us as well. Raise your hand and make comments if you need to. Otherwise, we're going on. There's the slavery. You had to know we were coming to that, surely. Uh, chapter 30, verse 8. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break. So this is the yoke of the oppressor, the king of Babylon, and others. I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. Oh, how many New Testament passages (laughs) come to mind about this. We're not enslaved to that any longer. Not to be. And don't bring yourselves into bondage. Hebrews chapter 2 There was a slavery. It was because um, it was because of a fear of death. And Jesus, through what he accomplished, even though he went through death, through death, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So the oppressor, the one who had put his yoke on them. The iron yoke, the one that couldn't be broken, he will break. God will break. And these bronze, you remember the bronze shackles that we read about? This is fine metal. It's good. These are good handcuffs. Um, they, they will be released from these things. He will, through death, rendered powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. 
so that he might free those who, through the fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. God intends to free his people from slavery. That was the gospel. And Jesus was proclaiming who he was and what he was about. In Luke chapter 4, even at some of his earliest kind of revealings of himself, he was proclaiming a release to the captives, the favorable year of the Lord, and to set free all those who had been downtrodden, the slavery of sin. And so um, this, this picture shows us the deliverance as well. And finally, so this is related, but uh, distinct in some ways, captivity that they had known for, they will, by the time this comes about, will have known for some 70 years. In 31 verse 16, they are going to return from the realm of the enemy or the land of the enemy. Look at, that's the very end of 3116. They shall return. But they had been um, in the place that was utterly ruled by the enemy. So it's hard not to think of what Christ had done. He rescued us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, brought us back out, transferred us into the uh, kingdom of his beloved son. And it tells it a different way here in Jeremiah 31, verse 11. A, a beautiful turn of phrase right here. The Lord has ransomed Jacob. So it's, he's been kidnapped, taken away by a, an abusive captor, and he's bought back. That, that, that demand was paid off. In the ransom. But this is what I really want you to see. He was redeemed from, from the hand of him who is stronger than he. Again, with the New Testament passages, I've selected one, <laughs> and there should be about 15 up there that say this. To select one, Titus had said that his purpose in saving us, his purpose in saving us was to redeem us. And to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself. These are my people. I will be their God. To purify for himself a, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. <clears throat> so the picture of captivity. What else do we need to say before we go on and maybe John, make some last things? Thanks, Sam. Just one word. Reconciliation. Yeah. That's another Yeah. There's room right at the very bottom. So next time around, that's going on there. Reconciliation. Um, yeah, absolutely. A new covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Not only is this the, the mountain peak of Jeremiah, it's one of the mountain peaks of the entire word. And it's this. He's speaking of future days many times. At that time and in those days. And here it is again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
a new one. Not, verse 32, like the covenant which I had made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. You remember that imagery? We left that several weeks ago. We had seen it several times over the course of several weeks, but we've left that for a while now. But the unfaithful wife who had gone away and, and into all kinds of ugliness, he, would, he had tried to be this faithful, and he was a faithful husband to them. They broke the covenant. And so what you remember, what was broken, had to be remade. It's like the pot. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't get put back together. <laughs> I don't know if you've tried, but by the time you break something into more than about two or three pieces, if you take the pot and break it like this, it's not going to be repaired. It has to be remade. And so there's a new covenant, a new covenant. <clears throat> not like that one, verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. All of God's covenant people, all of you in this room, have probably a copy of the law in your hands, but you have a copy of these laws in your hearts, all of God's covenant people. He's written these laws on their hearts. Within them and on their hearts, he says, I will write it. And what we've been pointing to, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And verse 34, very significant to uh, sort of the themes that we've tried to highlight to the best of our abilities. Verse 34, they will not teach every, each man his neighbor and every man his brother, <clears throat> saying, know the Lord. I don't have to tell you, all of you, my brothers and sisters and neighbors, who the Lord is, I can't help it because I see it here and I've been told to teach this. And this teaches us who God is, but you know who God is. All of his covenant people know him. They will not teach each other saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. And one of the most significant foundations of knowing God is on this. It is for, it is for his activity in forgiving their sins. They will know me for I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. Amazing. <clears throat> Just a few more observations from, and things that have, we're calling to mind, uh, these themes that we've seen throughout, a couple more observations in these last maybe minute or so that we have left. Jeremiah had seen an almond tree. What, what is it? What have you seen, Jeremiah? An almond tree. I'm watching over my word to perform it. And he says, just like I had spoken and I had uh, watched over my word to break down and destroy and to pluck up. In the same way, I'm watching over my word to plant. And <clears throat> the... Fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed 
everything that he has spoken, until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. These things are absolutely sure and certain. And in the latter days, you will understand that. Okay, last slide. God is calling them back. Anyone who will listen. Um, God calls. There's a way back. That's how somebody put it to me after a class probably six weeks or so ago, something like that. He knew that from his own life and his own experience. There's a way back. And God is trying to help them see that. I love chapter 31, verse 21. Set up for yourselves road marks. Place for yourselves guideposts. We need to make sure we're going the right way. Direct your mind to the highway. This is we're headed um, as fast as possible. And it's by the way you went. You went away from me. Now get on that highway and come back. The way you went away, make some signs and get everybody going back and come back to me. For the Lord has created, well, excuse me. By the way you went, return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. He says, I will save you from afar. I will gather them from everywhere that I had sent them. And my loving kindness will draw them back. Jacob will return. Amazing, amazing things we see. Well, thank you for being along for that and for your good attention, kindness in every way.